Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're hitting a lot of favorites in the last few weeks. I know 1 Thessalonians is another big favorites book. You've probably got a lot of verses memorized from 1 Thessalonians. It's a very small book. If you're not familiar with it, um, a little cheat code here I'll give you. I think it's on page 987 in the black hardbacks around you if you're flipping there in one of those. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we'll be. We're going to continue on in a sermon series that we are in right now called Christianese, the things Christians say. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at some big concepts and words and phrases. Um, I just got really loud, didn't I? Some big concepts and words and phrases that uh, Christians have inherited throughout the years and that uh, sometimes we misunderstand or misuse, sometimes get distorted for us. Um, And we've gone through some big ones already. We've, We've talked about holiness, what it means say that God is holy and that we're called to holiness. We've talked about sin. Uh, we've talked about um, sovereignty. What does it mean to say God is sovereign or God is in control? And then last week, we talked about the gospel. And we talked about ways to look at the gospel um, that perhaps are more faithful and more true to the, the biblical stories um, than other ones. And so by popular demand, people ask that we continue the series for a few more weeks. Who knows if that means people really like the series. You might just be remembering that we've got Ecclesiastes to go back to. We've still got a few weeks in Ecclesiastes, um, a sermon series we had started before Easter. Um, but we've gotten a lot of feedback on the sermon series, and in a, in a lot of ways, this kind of defines who we are as a church and kind of our um, culture and atmosphere here. We are a church um, who has kind of publicly and together and internally committed to being a deep church and to thinking hard about things and to never settling with just the status quo uh, or things of that nature. And... Um, For some of us, I know in the past few weeks, some of the things we've talked about have been a little challenging, Um, have been things you maybe never thought of that way before, or you're like, well, I kind of grew up my whole life hearing the version you like set up to knock down in your sermon, and so like even if I can resonate with some of that, it's still kind of hard to wrap my mind around, and and I think it's one of the neat things about our church. I think um, one of the things I've experienced is people on the outside in sometimes don't understand, Um, so, so when people find out that people in our church believe different things, they often have a hard time kind of like understanding that. And they're like, so not everyone believes exactly what you believe since you're the pastor. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, I don't think that's true anywhere, first of all. Um, but there's no like public like pressure for people to agree or not agree or, or that kind of thing. And um, you know, we kind of celebrate diversity um, and, and unity in the midst of that diversity. Um, and I've, I've kind of always encouraged you to never believe 100% what I believe because what I can guarantee you is that while I currently think all of my ideas are 100% correct, otherwise I wouldn't believe them, I can also guarantee you that probably in a year or two, or three or four or five years, some of those beliefs will have changed a little bit. And so if you were with me all the way right now, we'll both be at fault for things that we can't even know about right now. Um, but one of my philosophies preaching now, going on like 12 years of preaching, is that like the cardinal sin of preaching is for a sermon to be boring. I mean, with the faith that we have, with the scriptures we've gotten, like there's just no reason um, for there not to be something interesting, for there not to be something that is um, captivating, for there is not to be something that kind of um, provokes something new. Um, and so I've always wanted you to hear a sermon, and, and not just from me, anyone who gets up here, and to have something new to think, to have a new question, to have a new angle at something. 
Um, we've always wanted to get up here and preach things that would connect the biblical story a little bit better, and where the big pieces of our faith would kind of be able to be seen as uh, interconnected as they are. Um, one of the things that's always been a goal of mine is that after a sermon, you would be equipped to make better sense of the Bible, a particular passage or a particular verse or a particular theme or word that you see throughout the scriptures. Um, another one is that you'd be better able to understand kind of church history and what the church has taught throughout history. Um, you know, my, my graduate studies were in early Christianity, and that's still kind of where my heart is at. And so there's a lot of things that we've kind of forgotten or don't emphasize now in our, our modern churches and the kind of evangelical Western world, but yet have been emphasized for 1,500 years all across the world. And so uh, I want to give you ideas and, and give you ways of looking at things that are perhaps a little bit more ancient than what we've always received and we're always comfortable with. Um, and so ultimately all of this, right, we want to invite you into a deeper faith and into a deeper ability to worship and appreciate the God that we serve. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at a concept that some of you might be very familiar with, some of you might not be all that familiar with, um, but we're going to be looking at the rapture, the rapture theology. Um, this is kind of end time stuff, talking about Jesus' second coming, Jesus' return, all those kind of stuff. Uh, that's, that's what we're implying when we talk about the word rapture and the rapture theology that comes from it. Um, we'll pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 which is the primary verse where people um, come up with the idea of the rapture. Um, and we'll explain what that is if you're not familiar with it um, as we go. So if you'll read with me in chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. <clears throat> then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, from the first couple of verses, you can probably see the immediate context of the passage, why Paul is writing this. The church in Thessalonica in the first century, we think it's one of our earliest letters from the Apostle Paul, they're struggling with the fact that some people in their church have died. Some people in their community that have been worshiping Jesus have died. And, right, the early Christians have this belief that we do, that Jesus on the cross, through his resurrection, defeats death. And Jesus' cross has gone back in time to defeat death and bring Adam and Eve and, and the righteous out of the graves. But the earliest Christians hadn't thought through this idea that perhaps they might die before all of this is all the way outworked. They, they originally had this belief that Jesus is coming back imminently. It could be any day, it could be any year, definitely within our lifetimes. And you see actually in the scriptures a progression of them starting to figure out it could be longer than we thought. It could be long enough that there's there are those of us in our community that might die already. Um, it could be, I mean, they would be shocked, right, to see it 2,000 years later. Um, I think once people start dying, though, they have all the theology to understand it, make sense of it. Um, and we still, I think, kind of get in this mindset of, like, it has to be our generation, okay? We have to be the ones where this ends. Um, partly this is self-importance, right? We're the ones big and powerful enough to ruin everything, and kind of crash this whole thing into the ground, or at least the generation above us set us up for this type of failure. Um, Jesus' second coming, the end of the world, that type of stuff, this type of thing that's always been predicted, 
Every generation since the first has always thought Jesus was coming back during their generation. They've all been wrong so far. It's the kind of thing where if we do believe as Christians, Jesus is coming back again, someone eventually has to be right. Okay, one of those groups is going to eventually be like, yes, we nailed it. We got it. All of you didn't know what you were talking about. But so far, a little bit of humility. I mean, it's just kind of not happened. And our perspective might be small. You know, there's a theologian who says, for all we know, we're still the early church. I mean, for all we know, this stretches out for thousands and thousands and thousands of more years. And people look back at us and like, oh, how cute. In 2019, they're still figuring things out. Look at them, like, really wrestling with things. Um, The way we look at, like, the pioneering work of the the early church in in our perspective, the first couple hundred years uh, with the apostles and after the apostles. Um, So the Apostle Paul's writing to encourage them, right? He's, He's writing just to basically say they're not, they're taken care of, right? They're not falling into some loophole of salvation, um, where they're not around and Jesus comes back. When he comes back, he says, Jesus is returning. Then he says, the dead in Christ will rise. This is resurrection language. This is tombs opening up. Okay, so those who have died in Christ, they'll come back alive. And then all those who are still living, they will meet with Jesus as he comes back and transforms the world. Now, rapture theology, what are we saying when we talk about that? Well, if you were like me as a kid, that's kind of what you grew up around. A lot of times the gospel was packaged into this type of understanding. Um, the best way to, to approach it is to think of, if you're familiar with it, a very popular fiction series, uh, fiction books here called Left Behind, the Left Behind series. Uh, nod your head if you're familiar with that at all, movies, that kind of thing. So it's hit or miss, and this is what I've found in ministry, is it's, it's really hit or miss. Some people, it feels like you're either all the way in or you're not very familiar with it at all. A lot of us grew up in this, uh, myself included as a child. We grew up with this kind of left-behind presentation, the gospel and this belief of what would happen when Jesus comes back. And for others, they're kind of like, what are you talking about? And, you know, this is not super familiar with me. Um, but they still, you know, surprisingly might be very influenced by this kind of theology, or might not just have a, a faithful way of, of understanding it. So rapture theology comes from um, 1 Thessalonians 4. And what you do is you pair 1 Thessalonians 4, this passage right here, with some text from Revelation, the book of Revelation, and with uh, some text from the Gospels, the end of the Gospels. And you put all of them together, and you kind of form it and shape it, and you kind of come up with this unified theory people do of what might happen uh, in the future, toward these end times when Jesus comes back, when all these promises in the scripture are being fulfilled. So rapture theology is this idea that when it says we're caught up with the Lord, it's this idea that when Jesus comes back, his church is going to be raptured, which basically means taken off of the earth. We're going to kind of go up, be taken off of the earth, and then what will happen, which is not here in the passage, but this comes from Revelation and some passages in the Gospels, they're taken off the earth for a time of judgment and tribulation. They're taken off the earth so they don't have to go through some really, really, really bad things that are coming. And if you've read the book of Revelation, and you see some of the things Jesus talks about toward the end of the Gospels there, um, when he's using language like this, you see there's, there's plagues and wars and earthquakes and, and like apocalyptic um, stars falling to the ground and um, all this, this type of terrible, terrible type of damage. And the idea is you don't want to be left behind. So when Jesus comes back, you don't want to be part of the group that's stuck here to experience all of these things, right? You want to have your heart in the right place. You remember what we talked about last week? Heart of hearts, right? You've got to know that you know that you know that you know. And then you've got to kind of check off that box if you're in kind of one way of looking at, at Christianity and the gospel. Otherwise, it was told to me as a child, any day now I could wake up and walk in my parents' room, no one's home, and see their clothes folded right at the end of the bed, 
Or it could be during the school day and right, I wake up from a nap I took during class occasionally and everyone in the class is gone because they were all good Christian stuff for me and all their clothes. For some reason, the clothes are always folded very nicely. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of tidiness and cleanliness. <laughs> Does this bring you joy? Um, the, cl- the clothes are always folded really, really neatly. And, and you can imagine this is kind of a fearful thing. We talked about this a little bit last week as well, right? Like presenting Christianity kind of appealing to a motive of fear or gratitude and beauty. And it seems we often get kind of wrong. We get off on the wrong foot if we really try to hit at those motives of fear. But that's what, kind of what it got at, right? You don't want to be left behind. So go ahead and take the step. Go ahead and make this decision, um, that kind of thing. Now, um, as you might again expect, I think this is off base. I think this is mistaken. I think there are much better, more faithful, more ancient ways of understanding um, the truths about not only this passage, but in larger concepts, Jesus' return um, and what we might understand about this um, rapture, this rapture idea. Um, so I can set it up for you a couple ways. Um, one of the ways I think we should have questions about this theory is, is when you're presented with the facts and, and you come to understand that this is a theory that's only been around since the 20th century, the 1900s. Um, almost no one in church history, and I'm not being hyperbolic, I'm, I'm saying, find me one person 250 years ago who would have thought about Jesus' second coming in these, length, these terms. Like leaving, usually for seven years, you leave the earth for seven years, trial, tribulation, judgment, all those type of things. You're not going to find it because no one's ever thought about this before. It's a new theory. People have thought about the second coming a lot, but they've never worked out a theory quite like this. Now, if you come across a new theory in a religion that's 2,000 years old, you should have questions. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it means you should probably be skeptical. Like, so really, new theories are allowed or encouraged or you'd be expected when you have new data, right? So did we learn something new about the language that might cause us to change our minds? Was there a new archaeological discovery that might cause us to change our minds? What is new about things? What new data do we have here Otherwise, it would be surprising that no one's ever thought of this before. And in fact, when you look at it, there's not all that much new, definitely nothing scripturally um, that comes about, except for the cultural context in which people created this theology. In uh, the Western world, largely North America, um, it came out of a theological system called dispensationalism. Now, before I run the risk of completely losing you this morning, just hang on with me for 30 seconds, dispensationalism is this belief system that God treats, um, we're really shoving this down, God treats the Jewish people differently than he treats the church. There's different dispensations in which God acts differently towards people. And basically, why you need a rapture for dispensationalism is they need a time period where God can judge the Jewish people and the rest of the world who rejects Jesus without judging, going through a tribulation, the church. Because they believe there's different rules. The Jewish people rejected Jesus, and they're going to receive judgment for that. The Christians, though, they got this grace officer, and so they get to kind of get sucked up out and avoid this tribulation. So big question mark for me right there, that this is a brand new thing in the thought of Christian theology. Second big question mark is um, that this would have been news to every other Christian almost that's ever lived in the face of the earth. The, the news uh, that you're going to get to escape tribulation. I got good news for you. Jesus is coming so that you can avoid suffering. To the early Christians, Revelation was written to, this certainly would have been a surprise. They were going through tribulation at the moment. I mean, they were being persecuted. They were being killed. Now again, maybe not this like very literal apocalyptic type of stuff, 
that you see in, in some of the, the, the language, the apocalyptic language in Revelation. But they're not waiting around for the tribulation or worried that they're going to get to escape suffering. Not like Jesus promised, they're, they're taking up their crosses. They're suffering. They're, they're sacrificing for their faith. In fact, the message of Revelation, if you read it through and through, never once is there a promise that you get to escape all these bad things that are being described. The promise is always you'll be rewarded when you endure. Keep going. Martyrdom is the encouragement of Revelation. Not the removal of a situation in which you might be made a martyr, but instead God's faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness through that suffering, through that persecution. Now, it just so happens in the 19th century, Northern American theologians were part of a very unique group of Christians in history. Christians who didn't experience much suffering for their faith. People who were pretty comfortable because of their Christianity. And to a group of people like that, this kind of a theology might make more sense. It might be more endearing, appealing. We're pretty comfortable right now, and so if all this bad stuff is coming, how are we getting off of this? I mean, how are we getting away from this? And then the biggest test for all of this is always just the Scriptures. What, I mean, what sense does this make of the Scriptures? So let's look at First Thessalonians 4 again. I want to suggest a more faithful way of um, reading this. Because there is this language here, but we'll start in verse 15. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now this word coming, the coming of the Lord, it's the Greek word parousia. Say that with me, one, two, three, parousia. Parousia, it, it really means a royal presence. The word itself means presence. In fact, the literal language of second coming is not very biblical at all. The, the, the Bible talks about the arrival or, or the presence of Jesus um, being made manifest, returning. Um, and this language in the first century um, is used in two ways. It's used religiously, so you can't talk about the divine presence being felt, so people experiencing God and God's presence. You could use the word parousia for that. Early Jewish believers used this word parousia to describe that experience. You can also use it politically. It's a very common political world. It's about a royal presence. In particular, what what is happening in the first century is um, a parousia would be a, a visit from an emperor or king to a colony or a province. So you have this big empire, you have an emperor over the empire, and they might colonize a city and then go to visit it. Or they might be an invading army and they might go to defend it and protect it. Um, they would use this word parousia. So for early Christians who were trying to describe something to the effect of an experience of God's transformative presence, as well as some sort of new embodied in-person political um, or, or rule, um, this word parousia makes a natural choice for. Um, in all of the, the passages in the New Testament that talk about Jesus returning or appearing or being present again amongst us, these themes are common. Um, that we're going to experience God's presence in a new way. It'll be unfiltered. So, like, right now we know Jesus, but we know him the same way you know someone you can only text. Right? I mean, there's knowledge there, but there's, like a, there's, a, there's a filter there. There's a layer there. It's not the same as being able to hear someone's voice. It's not the same as being able to see someone face-to-face. And then, too, the Jesus who's far in spirit, or near in spirit but far in body now, will one day be embodied right in front of us. We'll rule face-to-face presently as he transforms the earth. And so this is the word that the early Christians use. And then we get a description of what will happen. So to follow this description, for the Lord himself in verse 16 will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Now notice two things. One, the movement language. The Lord is descending. He's coming down. 
the first thing let's note here is this is most likely metaphorical language. When we talk about metaphysics, the things that we believe, the big things we believe about the world and how it's structured and what's real in the world and what's not real in the world, one of the things Christians are going to want to do is say, when Jesus ascends to heaven and when he descends from heaven, we're not talking about like a spatial direction in our space-time universe. So heaven, which might be a future topic we do here, but, but heaven is not a location somewhere in our solar system or right outside of our solar system or in a neighboring galaxy. You can't give a NASA pilot, right, instructions, and then eventually if they have the technology, they could arrive at the front gates of heaven. It's a different type of space, right? I mean, it's like similar to what we might think of a dimension. It's a different dimension altogether. It's not a location in our present reality. Um, and so it's probably incorrect to think of Jesus going to heaven as just like, right, like a, like a missile launch. And you get to that part of the atmosphere where like, there's the fire coming out around him, and you can just kind of watch him like, slowly disappear. Now, the language is helpful, and who knows, right? When Jesus ended, he might have gone up verse until you can't see him anymore in the clouds. But most Christians would say you're probably not supposed to really think that all the way through, very literally, right? Like he just then continues on until he finally arrives um, at heaven. It's more like Chronicles of Narnia, perhaps, where like you walk through a door, and then you take a step, and you're in this other world, Right? Um, they're, they're overlapping. They're different kinds of reality, different kinds of spaces. Um, and then uh, you have the language of um, royalty. Again, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. When you see these words, trumpet, cry of command, both religiously and politically, these are all um, triggers for you to think of God's arrival, God's presence, or the king's arrival, the king's presence. It's so easy to miss out on cultural idioms um, when we're reading ancient texts, um, in ancient languages, in ancient cultures. Um, if you know another language, you probably know this, right? There's idioms we use in our native tongue that just don't translate very well, particularly literally. It's raining cats and dogs. I've been under the weather, right? I mean, when you try to explain that to someone who doesn't speak English, eventually you're kind of left to like, well, that's kind of what we say, right? We have a cultural encyclopedia, when we use terms like that or words like that or quote something like that, we're recalling something we're all familiar with, but it doesn't guarantee someone else will be familiar with. In the future, or who's from another part of the world who experiences a different culture. But when Paul's using this language, he's invoking these royal themes. It's very likely that his original readers would have understood kind of what he was trying to get at. So watch this, this sin language. We're going to watch the up and down arrows to help us out. I found that sometimes you diagram this. It really helps people get their minds around the problems with the literal very literal reading of this. <clears throat> the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. So resurrection, people who are alive, transformed. They will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So they're going up. Jesus is ascending. The church, those just resurrected and those transformed, those living, are going up. There's some sort of meeting in the air. And we're told, so we will always be with the Lord. Now here's the big mistake. We're not told, so there we will be with the Lord. And if we were, again, we'd still have problems with this like seven-year rapture period because we're always supposed to be with the Lord wherever we're at at this point in time. So a couple things have to happen, right? If you've got A going this way, B going this way, and they're supposed to say together, they either both stop their directions or one turns around and moves with the other. So perhaps those going up turn around and come back with Jesus or those Jesus coming down turns around and goes up with us. You know, those are like the options here. We're trying to really think this through very literally. Well, many scholars believe, and I think this is, this is more or less 
right and, and would have been pretty clear to the original audience that, that Paul's invoking a very common procedure that would have happened in the Roman world when they're talking about the parousia of a king, of an emperor. Basically, here's what would happen. If, if the emperor was coming to your province or your colony, you would not wait at the city gates until the king showed up. That would be seen as like lazy and disrespectful. What you would do is you'd instead go out and meet him quite a ways away from the city gate. And you'd welcome him. And the point is not that you are going to like camp out there and just spend time in the open country there with the emperor. The point is you're going to like bring a parade back, a royal procession back into the city to welcome him, show him honor, to try to curry favor with the emperor. And for people who are very familiar with how this happened in the ancient world, when they hear this language, and they see what's happening, it's likely they might have caught on to this sort of picture. Instead of a rapture type idea, the idea that Jesus is coming back to be the king and ruler over his kingdom, and on his way to be present, to arrive, his people go out and greet him. They don't greet him in order that they might stay out of the city, or might turn around and go somewhere else, they greet him to welcome him back. They turn around and proceed back with the king to his rightful place. The, the word here, caught up, this is where the, the word rapture eventually comes from in a different language. Um, caught up, it very literally in Greek means to be seized or to be claimed. The Lord seizes, he claims those who are his, and they together come back um, to his creation. It's a much more simple kind of way of understanding Jesus' second coming. There's not like a stutter step. There's no two parts to Jesus' second coming where he comes partially and takes the church and then comes back fully after the tribulation. No, Jesus comes, his church meets him and welcomes him back to his creation. Where then we know there will be judgment. Those who are judged will be thrown into, in Revelation, the lake of fire, which then in Revelation itself is thrown into another lake of fire. Oregon in Revelation, they'll live forever on this new heaven, the new earth, reigning with Christ for all of eternity. This, I think, is a more faithful, better way to understand this passage. Um, these imperial themes, these royal themes, and this idea, I think, are present throughout all of the key New Testament passages that talk about Jesus' parousia, his presence or arrival, his coming. Um, the reality to which this passage alludes, and to all of them do, is that one, one day Jesus will be personally present, Two, the dead in Christ will rise. And then three, that which is there and living at the moment will be transformed with human beings and all of creation. It's very similar to what you find in other passages that at first glance don't look very similar. So in Philippians chapter three, um, we're told that you and I are citizens of heaven. So we keep our eyes on heaven where we await our Savior. And one day the Savior will come and he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies. They're the same, same themes here. Jesus will be present. Jesus will bring resurrection, bring transformation with his presence. And again, just like in Philippians, when you're looking at that passage, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Well, if you're in a city that's a colony, like Philippi was, what it means to be a citizen of another empire is it means you've been granted special status. And you're not supposed to go to that city the Philippians weren't supposed to go to Rome. That was the whole point of it, was that it should stay in Philippi. We don't have space for you. We'll instead make you a part of our thing. And so when the citizens of Philippi would await the emperor to come, it wasn't so that he could transfer them all back to Rome. It was so that he could transform Philippi and make that into a 
Roman colony, fulfill their citizenship. This is like what Jesus is praying about in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Philippians were promised that one day Christ would return, he'd be present, and he'd bring with him transformation. Rapture theology is bankrupt in the sense that it's escapist. It wants us to, to get us out of any suffering or tribulation. It wants to take us away from this world. These aren't themes you find faithfully throughout the, the New Testament. It said the New Testament is transformative when it talks about Jesus returning. It uses the language of, of change, transformation, renewal, recreation. Now, there are other places in the Bible, if, you were, if you're into this kind of rapture theology, where you might look and, and, and we might need to talk through some passages. So in the Gospels, Jesus does use some language like this. For instance, in Matthew 26, he talks about um, when the Son of Man comes in glory, um, one will be taken and one will be left behind, and one will be in the field and one will be taken and one will be left behind. But if you look at the context of this passage, he's comparing it to the flood story. And if you can think through the flood story, if the flood comes, do you want to be the one taken by the flood or the one who remains? You want to be the one who remains. So the whole point is opposite there in those gospel stories. Whatever he's talking about, he's talking about something that you would want to stay for. This is the thing, you, you would want to be the left behind one for this. Um, and he uses the flood as the, a metaphor for that. Um, in fact, again, we, most scholars think we probably know what he's talking about. And again, it's kind of a cultural idiom thing. He's referring to something the Romans would do. Is they would take one and leave another. So here's what they would do. They'd come into a city that's in rebellion or that they want to intimidate. And, and the way they rule by this kind of brutal, savage force is they'd come in and they would randomly take people. So they would break into your house and take one kid and not the other. And they'd go into the workplace and they'd take one worker and not the other. And they'd see a couple and they'd take one of the couple and not the other. And they would string them up on crosses. Hundreds at a time. We have records maybe thousands at a time as a way of getting the message across, right? We're the ones in charge. When Jesus is using words like this, his listeners probably, no, we're aware of what happens with this. And in fact, the, a lot of the language Jesus is using seems to be prophecies he's making about the temple, which we know in just a few years is laid under siege by the Romans. And then fall, still hasn't been rebuilt to this day. We, we take First Thessalonians 4 and we package it with certain things we find in Revelation and then certain things we can pull out of the Gospels. And I would just suggest if you really start to unravel all these different threads, they unravel in any sorts of escapist sort of theme. But they stay faithful and stay true to this core message. So the pendulum can swing like it does with a lot of things. So I grew up hyper-focused on the second coming of Jesus and very worried about being left behind and those type of things. And so the the the... the the temptation always is to swing all the way over to the other side. And so then you don't really talk about the second coming at all. It's not a very big emphasis for you. But you're just too worried about the temptation and caught up in like, trying to read the signs and um, do all of this type of stuff. You've seen kind of how harmful it can be to your friends or to your family. You've seen kind of how it can be spiritually abusive or create... I mean, I know Christians, I have friends, I've had students throughout the years who have like a, a, a sort of PTSD with this type of theology because they grew up so scared of these things happening um, in the way that the, their teachers or their friends um, used it and weaved it into their faiths was, was not healthy for them. Um, and so we can kind of avoid it. And I'll never forget, um, Janelle remembers 
this young man, Marshall, is, is a kid in our, our Bible study many, many years ago, and he was very new to Christianity, and, and we were there in a group with him when he realized for the first time that Jesus was coming back. And it's something we always kind of grow up with. Even if you're not a Christian, you kind of are like, okay, yeah, that's in the thought system, right? They think he's going to return. Imagine being an 18-year-old who just became a Christian who's trying to fix a lot of things you've got going wrong, sitting in this group and like, wait a minute, are they talking about him returning? And at one point, he's like, whoa, 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 hold up, everyone, hold up. Y'all are saying he's coming back. And it was like the look on his face, like this changes everything. And this is, again, kind of the sense you get in the New Testament. Where we talk about Jesus' return, the second coming, his appearance, his presence, says it makes a difference for now. It brings us encouragement. It brings us challenge and conviction. Parasee language is confrontation language. And the scriptures are constantly confronting us with what our true allegiance is to. To say Jesus is returning as Lord is to say something about who he is right now, the Lord of all things, though not bodily in person. To say that Jesus is coming back as Lord is to say that we're committed to him and his agenda. You know, what we believe about the future affects how we act now. So I believe systems where the body's not important and your soul spends eternity disembodied from your body in heaven, why they have a hard time encouraging people to take care of their bodies. Or why I believe system where the world itself is kind of burnt and thrown away with has a hard time having any sense of like creation care. Why should we take care of the earth right now? Why should we be good stewards over it like we've been called to be? And so this morning as we come to the table... Um, I'd love us to, to think on and focus on and give weight to this truth that one day Jesus is appearing. His presence will come near to us in a new and more powerful embodied way. But this is a truth that should encourage us. Sometimes we, we take some of our attachment disorders with our parents or siblings or friends and we kind of it starts to leak into our relationship with Jesus. And we know Jesus, right? But there's still this level where we don't quite know him. We don't know him fully. He's not here. He's not here with us. And sometimes trying to hold those two thoughts in our mind, we can get into an unhealthy place where we find a hard time attaching to him or we find ourselves um, in an unhealthy way attached or obsessed. No, instead, we can, we can hold firm and, and be encouraged in this promise. We can be convicted and, and challenged right now. Who are we serving? We can be called to embrace the Christian path of suffering and sacrifice. Our lives were never supposed to be about our comfort and our safety. The, the, the big promise of Jesus is not that we'll get to escape these, these things, but there's life on the other side of them. The crucifixion is not the last word, but the resurrection is. So as we come to the table this morning, I invite you to um, give thanks to God for these truths um, and come to the table with uh, hope in your hearts uh, because of them.